passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Did everybody have a good Christmas? And hopefully you were able to uh, be able to get connected with us on Christmas Eve, either in person or online as we celebrated Christ's birth that night. It was a great time of worship, wasn't it? Yeah, I am so blessed to have a, a wonderful team that does an incredibly great job as we, uh, on that service as we helped celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But the honest truth is that we wouldn't even know about Christmas if it wasn't for our Bible. We wouldn't even be celebrating Christmas if it wasn't for our Bible. And we trust our Bible because the Bible tells us the truth. It tells us the truth about God in a world that we are filled with spin, in a world filled with misinformation, social media manipulation where we don't know the truth and it's hard to find the truth. The good news is here at Crosswinds, we have the Bible, which is the truth. In fact, John chapter 14, verse 6, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the and the life. John chapter 17, verse 17 says, the word of God is truth. So we have the truth in the living word, which is Jesus Christ. We have the truth in the written word, which is the Bible we have that we study out of. And this, by the way, is why I love the Bible, which is why I love to teach out of the Bible. Because a newscaster, you have no idea if they're telling you the truth. But as a preacher, I always get to preach the truth to you guys. Because we're all looking at the same book, which is the truth. Now here's what's amazing. Even though the Bible that you hold in your hands is thousands of years old, I can tell you with great confidence that the English Bible you hold in your hand accurately represents what was written by God, inspired to the prophets, thousands of years before. You say, well, well, why can I say that? Why am I so confident that the Bible you have in your hand is still the truth, even though it ranges between 2,000 and 4,000 years old? Why do we know this is still the truth? And the answer is because of something called the science of textual criticism and also something called the history of manuscript transmission. And then you go to seminary, before they teach you how to expound the Word of God, they spend a fair amount of time teaching you why you can actually trust the Word of God. How you can know with great confidence that this book is still God's Word, and it faithfully represents God's Word to us. Because you know what the fruitcakes and the nut jobs out there do. They attack this book, don't they? Say, well, you can't trust this book because it's been copied for thousands of years and it's filled with errors and it's filled with mistakes. We don't really know what God said at all. But in seminary, what they do is they say, you need to know the history of this book. You need to know that the book that you will be preaching from is indeed a faithful copy of what God said. It is a trustworthy document. And this is what heads us into the Gospel of Mark, where we are going to be at this morning. We finished Mark, if you remember, just before Christmas, but I told you that the end of Mark, there are some extra verses at it. If you have uh, your copy of God's Word, you'll see them. They're in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And these verses appear to question the very accuracy of the Bible. Modern translations have a disclaimer over it. Go ahead, Jeremy, put this up. You can see this is my copy of my electronic Bible. There it is. It has these bracketed words on the top. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. And it gets interesting, because if you then go from a modern translation to an old translation like the King James, go ahead and put the King James up there. Where is that disclaimer? It's not there. It's missing. Well, here's the question. What's going on here? 
Kurt, I thought you just said the Bible was accurate. The Bible was trustworthy. Yet this disclaimer says that these verses don't actually belong. But in the King James, it doesn't say these verses don't actually belong. That seems like a conflict. That seems like a problem. I'm going to tell you this morning that instead of these verses eroding your confidence in the trustworthiness of God's word, we're going to spend some time looking at textual criticism and manuscript transmission, sort of a more technical subject, which is why I get to do it between Christmas and New Year's, and showing you why these verses actually bolster our confidence that the Bible you hold in your hand is actually God's word. Most Sundays, I, I teach from the perspective of what do these verses actually mean to us. Today, I'm going to teach from a different perspective, which is where did the verses in our Bible actually come from? And how do we know that we can still trust them? I'm going to do this under two main headings. First, we're going to look at the external evidence for why these final verses in the Gospel of Mark do not belong. And then we'll look at the internal evidence for why the, these verses in the Gospel of Mark do not belong. And along the way, you'll discover why the other verses in your Bible are trustworthy and true, and you can base your life upon them. By the way, guys, this is a message I am super excited about giving. I've been really excited about giving this thing for about a month. A little technical, but it is going to be extremely edifying for you. So I would encourage you, get your outlines out. Take good notes this morning. You will really want to remember what we're going to see. Number one, the external evidence of textual criticism proves Mark's final verses do not belong. Now, all translations of the Bible, such as the one that we have in our hand, they're based upon ancient copies of the Bible that are literally thousands of years old. These ancient copies of the Bible still exist in libraries around the world today. These ancient copies of the Bible, uh, there are people out there who are sort of scientists. They look at them, they study them, and they compare them to make sure these copies say the same thing, that they're accurate and true. And when they've compared these ancient copies of the Bible, therefore they know what our modern copy of the Bible should say because they know that it compares to what was originally written. The Holy Spirit, as we know, is the ultimate author of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the prophets and the apostles to write exactly what he wanted said in the words that are in our Bible. But the Holy Spirit is not just the author of the Bible. He is also the preserver of the Bible. To bring it down to us today so we know that it faithfully represents what God actually said. It was the Holy Spirit who, uh, who preserved these ancient copies of the Bible that we can look back upon and see and make sure that our modern copies of the Bible are accurate and true. As we're going back in history to look at these ancient copies of the Bible, the thing we need to know, the watershed mark we need to begin to build upon, is the year 1500 A.D. At 1500 A.D. is when the printing press came out. And then it was easy to make accurate copies of the scriptures. You just, you know, pull the lever and an accurate copy comes along. But before 1500 A.D., Copies of the Bible were made by hand. And when you copy things by hand, you would, of course, understand it could be very easy to introduce errors to them. But this is where we need to know about how the copying by hand took place. We're going to begin by looking at how the Old Testament books were copied. The Old Testament is accurate because it was carefully copied by scribes. Our Old Testament books uh, are somewhere between 3,900 to 2,000 years old. As I said, they were copied by hand. But they weren't copied by just anybody. The Jews had scribes or copyists who copied the, the, the Old Testament books, and they took their task extremely seriously 
to preserve the accuracy of the Old Testament books they copied. I'll give you an idea of how seriously they took this copying method. For instance, they numbered all the letters. Like an A had a 1, a B had a 2, a C had a 3, and then they would calculate the numerical value of each line and make sure the original numerical value matched the copy's numerical value. But they took this far more extreme than you and I would realize. They numbered the number of times each letter of the alphabet appeared in an Old Testament Bible book, and they matched the same number of times that letter appeared in the copy of that Bible book. How many times the letter A occurred in the original and the copy of the book? How many times the letter B occurred in the original and the copy of the book? To make sure they were identical copies to one another. Not only did they number the letters, but they knew the exact center letter of every single Bible book. And they made sure that center letter was identical in the original as well as in the copy. Nothing was allowed to be written by memory. Even the spaces between the letters was measured by a thread. So each letter was equally spaced apart from one another. If one error was made when they were copying a Bible book, the entire Bible book was either buried or burned and destroyed. Are you getting an idea they took this seriously? I'll give you a, sort of a fun story. One scribe, was, we find, what he did is he write one letter in the copy of the Bible book he was making, and then he would go and bathe. And after he was done bathing, he would come back and then write another letter and go and bathe. He continued doing this until he had made an entire copy of the Old Testament. Like, why did this guy get into such personal cleansing and hygiene? Did he smell that bad? It was because he was trying to emphasize the seriousness of what he was doing. The purity that was needed on his part to copy the very holy words of God. Gives you an idea of how seriously he took his job. Robert Dick Wilson, who's a, a scholar of ancient literature, he has looked at the literature of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Moabites, where they talk about the kings and who the kings were and when the kings reigned. And then he's taken that and he looked at that with the Hebrew Old Testament says about who the kings were and when those kings reigned. And he says the Hebrew Old Testament, even though it ranges between 3,900 and 2,000 years old, and it's been copied many times, when you compare it to the most ancient documents we have of these cultures that talks about the kings, the Hebrew Old Testament is right 100% of the time, every time. Are you getting an idea of how carefully the Hebrew Old Testament was copied? One very important piece of history is that when um, we, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they gave us a window into the Hebrew Old Testament that was a thousand years earlier than the earliest copies we had on hand. And you know what we discovered? It said the exact same thing. That the Hebrew copyists of the Old Testament were faithful to copy that book with stunning accuracy. Now let's look at the next one. The New Testament is accurate because of the numerous manuscripts that remain. Since we're going to be looking this morning at the final verses in the Gospel of Mark, I'm not going to spend more time on the Hebrew Old Testament, but let's focus on the accuracy of the New Testament. The key thing to remember is while the Hebrew Old Testament was copied by scribes with stunning accuracy, the New Testament was not copied by scribes, but it was copied in stunning abundancy. We have 25,000 full or partial copies of the New Testament from antiquity for us to examine. Now some of you may say, well, that's all? Just 25,000 ancient copies of the Bible exist? No, that's not all that ever existed. 
that is all that currently still exists in today from ancient history. Those are pieces, either partial or full copies of the New Testament, dating back 2,000 years. And the good news is, what this does is allows us to compare these copies of the Bible. And it's easy to see if somebody made a copying mistake. Because if somebody copied something wrong and a thousand other copies do not have that error, it's easy to find it, isn't it? Because you have 999 or a thousand copies that don't have that copying mistake in it. So, as I said, the Old Testament was the scribes and the painstaking accuracy of how they copied. The key thing with the New Testament is the abundance of the copies. And the Holy Spirit preserved so many copies of the New Testament that come from all the way back from when it was originally written that we can see that it is accurate to what it originally said. The next point. The New Testament is accurate because of the age of the manuscripts. I told you there are 25,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in existence. 5,656 of those are considered super old. Very old. Like from the 2nd and 3rd century old. From the year years 100 to 300 A.D. old. Remember, the New Testament wasn't even written until the years 60 to 90 A.D. And yet we have copies of the New Testament that go back like from 100 to 300 A.D. Right from the very time it was written. Let me tell you uh, sort of three examples of that. Famous manuscripts here before the year 325 A.D., because you'll see in a moment that's a, a watershed date for us. The first one I want to show you is called, what's called the Rylands Papyrus. Uh, these ancient copies of the Bible are, are usually named by their founder. In this case, the guy's name was Rylands. They also have a coding system. Uh, this one has a P in front of it because if it was written on papyrus, which as you know is uh, reeds that are pressed together, were often used as paper, and they are rolled up into scrolls, it, was, it would be called a P and then it would be given a number. This was called P52. Go ahead and put the graphic up. Thank you, Jeremy. This is a little fragment of it. Um, it's a piece of it. There's a lot more than that piece that we found. But what it contains is a large portion of the Gospel of John. This papyrus was written in, written in the year 130 A.D. John didn't write his Gospel until 90 A.D. Bruce Metzger, who is a, if you've been around the academic side of Christianity, he's hugely respected. He says if this papyrus had been discovered 100 years earlier, it would have completely decimated the whole science of higher criticism that the Germans put forward, which introduced liberalism into the mainline denominations. The idea that uh, the New Testament documents were really late, late, creations with a huge separation between the times of the authors or with our, the claimed authors and the creation of the actual books. And here there isn't a huge separation. We have this fragment that goes all the way back to when John lived. I'll give you another example. Let's look at the Bodmer papyrus. Put the graphic of that one up there. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, this actually contains all of the Gospel of John. It contains the entire Gospel of Luke. It's obviously a lot more than what you see on the screen. It dates from the year 150 A.D. to 200 A.D., somewhere in that early time. It is a copy of the New Testament that is only 60 years after John and Luke were written. You see, I mentioned to you earlier that these are kept in libraries around the world. This is kept in what's called the Library of World Literature in Switzerland right now. Another one, the Chester Beatty Papyrus. Go ahead and put the graphic up there. Thank you. It contains all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, plus the book of Acts. 
It dates from the year 200 A.D. It's only 100 years old after the original copies were written. It's kept in the Chester Beatty Museum in Dublin, Ireland. Now, I just told you the story of only three papyrus that date back to the very dates when the New Testament itself was written. But do you know how many stories I could tell you of ancient copies of the Bible? Do you remember? 5,656. I told you, our Bible is a trustworthy book, and all those are before the year 300 A.D. Now, what you must understand is this is completely amazing because there should not be 5,656 ancient copies of the Bible before 300 A.D. in existence today. Historically, between 100 and 300 A.D., you remember that the Jews, as well as the Romans, were persecuting Christians. They were trying to eliminate Christians. Every time they found a copy of a book of the Bible, what did they do to it? Destroyed it. Yet God, in his graciousness, even in spite of all that persecution during that time, has given us 5,656 copies of the Bible that still exist today from the most ancient days. I should say of the New Testament to be more accurate. Now when we get to the 4th century, things change. That's around the 300 AD or thereafter. At that time, you know, Constantine became the emperor of Rome. Constantine legalized Christianity. Persecution of the church ended. And the New Testament all of a sudden began to be copied in abundance like crazy. After that period, we have about 20,000 copies of the New Testament, full or partial, that exist that we still have today after the year 300 A.D. I, I told you the story of three famous papyrus before 325 A.D. Now let me tell you the story of two famous codex that are after 325 A.D., once Christianity was finally legalized. And I, let me explain the difference between a codex and a papyrus, just before we get into this. Papyrus was uh, obviously reeds that were pressed together, that were written upon, rolled up in scrolls. But after a while, people sort of came up with a new way of doing books. It's called a codex. And a codex is essentially what a modern book is. It's pages stacked together with a binding on it, so you open it. So this is the story of three codexes. The first one I want to tell you about is called Codex Sinaiticus. It contains the entire New Testament. Most of the Old Testament is still in good condition. It essentially represents the entire Bible that you hold in your hands today. And you know when it was written? 350 A.D. Now, there's an amazing story about how this was discovered. So I'll tell you this one. The year was 1844. A 30-year-old man called Count von Tischendorf was traveling the ancient world, specifically searching for old copies of the Bible. He's one of these text-critical scientists. How do the old copies of the Bible compare? And as part of his copies, he went to Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, there's a monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery. One night, while staring there and talking to the monks, he noticed they were taking paper from a trash can and using it to light their fires. He picked up some pieces of paper from the trash can, and realized it was 1,200-year-old, or older than 1,200-year-old, Greek copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. He's like, guys, you don't use these things as fire starters. And he pulled 43 pages of this out of the trash can, to which the monk told him, oh, we've already burned two trash cans full. <laughs> now, they let him keep those 43 pages. He went back to Leipzig, Germany, 
and was able to publish those. And Bible scholars around the world were thrilled to have what is a Greek copy of the Hebrew Old Testament that's over 1,200 years old actually look like. Incredibly valuable. He continued his search for manuscripts and eventually, uh, in 1853, nine years later, returned to St. Catherine's Monastery looking for more ancient copies of the New Testament. But by this point, the monks were suspicious. They wouldn't give him anything to look at, and of course they wouldn't let him look at their trash cans. He returned again a few years later in 1859. And once again, the monks would give him nothing to look at. But before he left, he spent a little bit of time with the head of the monastery, and he gave that man a copy of the book that he published in Germany that had the 43 pages he pulled out of the trash can as a gift to the head of the monastery. Well, he turned around and said, Oh, you have a book? I have a book too. And he went back to his quarters. He pulled out a book that was wrapped in red velvet, and he let Count von Tischendorf looked at it. It was Codex Sinaiticus, the entire copy of the Bible, written in the year 350 A.D. The monk knew it was valuable what he held in his hands, but had no idea the age or the value. What eventually happened? Through the czars of Russia, Eventually, uh, that book was taken and given uh, on Christmas Day, 1933, to the Russian Tsar. And then he gifted it to a library in London, where it exists today. It is one of the oldest complete copies of the Bible in a book format that we have in our hands. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I'll give you another story of an amazing codex. This one's called Codex Vaticanus. It's slightly older than Codex Sinaiticus. By the way, the other one was called Codex Sinaiticus because it was found on Mount Sinai. This is Codex Vaticanus. Where do you think it's kept? The Vatican. It is a sister copy of Codex Sinaiticus. Go ahead and put the graphic up. I forgot the graphic from um, Sinaiticus. This is the Codex Vaticanus book. And... Um, once again, it was published right after Christianity was legalized, and now they all of a sudden started to publish the, the New Testament and the Bible in mass. Incidentally, Codex Sinaiticanus and Codex Vaticanus do not have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 in them. Just want to point that out as we're going through. The New Testament is also accurate because of the age of its translations. As a church, we often talk about the fact that we are committed to reaching people with Jesus. That's our goal, that more people would know Jesus, worship Jesus, and be saved by Jesus. And we have a, a missions, missionaries that we support for that. And those missionaries are oftentimes trying to take the gospel into places where they do not speak English. Some of our missionaries are actually translating the Bible into other languages so people can read God's word in their native tongue. And that's not a new idea. That's been something that's been happening since Pentecost itself, where God enabled people, God brought his word into other languages for other people to be able to read and understand. In fact, if you look at Latin, for instance, we have... Right now, 8,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in Latin. Go ahead and put that up there. Thank you, Jeremy. And they date all the way back to the year 382 A.D. It's pretty old. You want to know what the Bible said? Well, you just go look at the Latin copy they made of it from the Greek. How about another language? Syriac. We have 350 early Syriac copies of the Bible. Go ahead and put that up. Thank you, Jeremy. They date back to the year 200 A.D. And I just mentioned two languages that the early New Testament was translated into. There are dozens more. They give us a window into what the early copies of the New Testament looked like. The New Testament is accurate also because of the age and quantity of quotations by the early church leaders. 
in addition to the thousands of copies of the New Testament itself, we have the early church leaders' writings. And the early church leaders, you know, 200 AD and on, they would often quote the New Testament in their writings as they're talking about things. Sort of like you have my sermon handouts that have scripture passages on them. They would do the exact same thing. How many quotations of portions of the New Testament do you think we have today because we have the early church leaders' writings? How many times? Do you want to make a guess? Uh, you're right. Thousands, like 32,000 quotations of the New Testament. Get this. Even if we did not have an ancient copy of the New Testament, not even one, before the year 325 A.D., we could still completely reconstruct the entire New Testament by just using the quotations of the early church fathers that wrote before the year 325 A.D. That is a lot. Now, uh, I talked to you about the fact that we have a Bible that we can trust, a Bible that accurately represents what God says. Just speaking about the New Testament, let me summarize this. We have 5,656 either full or partial copies that are before the year 325 A.D. to know what was accurately said. We have 8,000 Latin copies that go back that earlier. We have 350 Syriac copies that go back to that time, not to name the other languages. And we still have an additional 35,000 quotations by the early church fathers who are quoting the New Testament in those early years, all before the year 325 A.D. Now, do you see why I say that your Bible is accurate? It is trustworthy? If you, somebody introduces an error, like the other 19,000 copies don't have that error, easy to find, easy to know the truth. To emphasize this, I want to point out in point F in your outlines, the New Testament is accurate because there are more copies of it than anything else from the ancient world. Let's compare the New Testament to other ancient documents. The New Testament, without question, is the most plentiful document we have from the ancient world. We have more copies of it than anything else. How do things compare? The second most plentiful document we have from the ancient world is what's known as Homer's Iliad. Do some of you remember reading that in, in college? Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies of the Iliad that exist. But here's what you need to understand as we think about that statistic. The Iliad was written in 800 B.C. The oldest fragment, let's piece, just a little piece of the Iliad that we have dates to the year 400 B.C. It's a copy of a copy of a copy that's 400 years after the original, just a little piece of torn up text. The oldest complete copy we have of the Iliad is 1,300 years after the original. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that was not made with painstaking accuracy. In fact, the Iliad is filled with something that manuscript scientists call conjectural emendation, which is a big fancy word for saying we had to guess what went in here. There is none of that in the New Testament at all. 25,000 copies versus 643 partial little piece copies. The next most plentiful document from ancient history is what's called Herodotus's History. It was written in the year 480 B.C. The oldest complete manuscript of that history comes from the year 900 A.D. It is 1,300 years after the original was written, and it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And how many 
copies of Herodotus' history do you think we possess today? Third most plentiful document from ancient history. Eight. Next, after that, comes Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars. It's written in 460 B.C. The oldest copy we have of that is 1,500 years after the original. There are only eight copies that were written, where Herodotus' history, the oldest copy we have of that is 1,300 years after the original. So go ahead and put the graphic up here, Jeremy, I put together. I just put this up on my little spreadsheet. So we have the New Testament with 25,000 copies. 5,600 of those date back to within 100 to 200 years of when it was written or like less than 60 years after it was written or may actually be like when they were written versus these guys. Which is by the time you get to here you have 1,300 years after the original, 1,500 years after the original, only eight copies. Now I've told you the Bible you hold in your hand is a trustworthy document. There is nothing like it in the entire world. There is no other more accurate document from ancient history. Do you see how God preserved this book? Why we can trust this book? Why we keep our finger in the text of this book every week? Can I get an amen on that? Amen. amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed our little segue into textual criticism and manuscript transmission. But the big question is, what does all this have to do with these final verses in the Gospel of Mark? Which is obviously what's called a textual variant. Because the ESB put a disclaimer in it. And what we have is that some copyists, some early copyists, threw in these extra verses, but when you compare it with all the other manuscripts, guess what? It's missing from the other manuscripts. So, why don't we just throw it out? Why is it still in your English Standard Version, which is the modern translation we use? The answer is because of the King James. The King James, which was written based on old manuscripts, but not nearly as old as what we have in our hands. It was written based off a manuscript that had this textual error of those last final 11 verses in it. We clearly know they don't belong, but I'll tell you what would happen. If they took it out of the ESV and said nothing about it, people would get upset. They're taking verses out of our Bible. My old King James has verses 9 through 20, and my new ESV doesn't. So to avoid everyone getting upset, the ESV put those verses in, but then gave you the disclaimer to say, by the way, they don't really belong. And it doesn't freak us out, because you learned the backstory. But almost nobody else knows it. That is why they put them in. Now, the other question to add is, why did these verses end up here in the first place? We covered this right before Christmas. Mark ended his gospel on an intentional cliffhanger. The women see the fact that the tomb is empty. The angel, te angel tells them that Jesus rose. They walk away when they are completely trembling. They're amazed and they're filled with fear and they say absolutely nothing. And it feels like, well, what happened next? That's it? Mark ended his gospel that way intentionally because he wanted people to finish his gospel and for them to go to their Christian friends and say, tell me the rest of the story about Jesus. Like, what happened next? Great way to do personal evangelism, isn't it? Set people up by finishing your book that you have to go talk to somebody about what happened to Jesus after your book. But one copyist said, this is just too much tension. So I need to like soften it a little bit and I'll throw some extra things in at the end to tell people what actually happened next. And that's how they ended up there. 
couple things. How do we know Mark 16, 9 through 20 was not part of Mark? A couple things. I'll summarize these quickly. These verses do not appear in the earliest copies of this gospel. As I said, we have thousands of early copies before 325, and almost nobody has those verses. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus do not have these verses in them. They're the earliest complete copies of what we call the entire Bible. Early church leaders knew that some copies of Mark's gospel had these extra verses, but they said they were not original when they wrote about them. Eusebius, who's a church leader from the year 280 AD, talks about these extra verses, but then he says, by the way, they're not originally part of Mark, and the early Greek manuscripts do not have them, and they don't belong. Jerome, writing in 390 AD, also talks about these verses and says they are not part of Mark. Justin Martyr, in the year 180 AD, talks about these extra verses and says they're not part of Mark, as well as Tatian, in the year 180 AD, talks about these verses and says they're not part of Mark. In short, there is a ton of external evidence, even by the early church fathers, that this was not originally what Mark wrote, which is why those extra verses don't belong. Well, I gave you a ton of external evidence. Let's take a few minutes to look at the internal evidence that these are not part of our scriptures. By the way, just as I look at these, let me just mention to you, I'm not saying what these verses say, that everything about them is untrue. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Mark is not the one who wrote them. Somebody added them at the end. Let me read them to you. Mark chapter 16, beginning verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had, raised, or after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Why do these verses not belong as we look at it internally? Let me give you some things. Number one. There's a missing transition between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 is talking about the women at the tomb. Verse 9 is about something completely different. Like, how do we go from talking about the women leaving the tomb to something completely different with no transition? Verse 8, it ends in the feminine tense. Verse 9 begins in the masculine tense. You guys ever take foreign languages where you have to match like the masculine and feminine tenses up? Why does verse 8 end in the feminine, but verse 9 starts in the masculine? It doesn't connect to it. Verse 9 also introduces us to Mary Magdalene. She was already in this gospel three times. Why does she get introduced as a new character now? The Greek vocabulary in these final verses is not consistent with the rest of Mark. In these final 11 verses, there are 18 new words introduced that have never been used in this gospel whatsoever. Like somebody else wrote it. 
I had a chance as part of my doctoral program after my doctorate was done to spend a week with Mark Strauss. Mark Strauss is one of the best scholars on the Gospel of Mark. He's written the, written the Zondervan uh, exegetical commentary. And I had a chance to study with him for a week, nonstop, on this book. And we got to these final verses. And remember, this is the guy who has literally translated the original Greek. He's the guy who authors, like, the English Bibles. He said, I can tell you without a doubt that these verses were not written by Mark. The Greek is completely different to everything else in this gospel. Like it was written by a different hand. Another thing. These closing verses introduce us to themes not mentioned in this gospel. Like where earlier in this gospel do we find picking up snakes, speaking in tongues, and drinking poison? No place. Most of the ending, by the way, is a patchwork of quotations from other parts of the gospel. Now, like I said, I'm not saying everything at the ending here is untrue, just that Mark didn't write it. For instance, verse 9 comes from Luke chapter 8. Verse 10 comes from John chapter 20. Verse 12 comes from Luke 24. Verse 13 comes from Luke 24. Verse 14 is also found in Luke 24. Verse 15 is found in Matthew 28. Are you getting the idea? What the guy did is he just pulled little parts of the other Gospels and like stitched them together. So he wouldn't say things that were untrue except for some of the strange stuff like drinking deadly poison, which we have no idea where that came from in the first place. So, what does the real ending of Mark's gospel teach us? The real ending was at verse 8. The ending that doesn't actually belong there begins at verse 9. So let me talk about what verse 8 teaches us and why this is so important. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. It feels to us like Mark ended his gospel abruptly with the women leaving the tomb after discovering that Jesus rose from the dead. But didn't Mark also begin his gospel abruptly? He doesn't tell, you about, tell us about Jesus' birth like Matthew or Luke. He just goes right into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says, here's Jesus' ministry, and here's Jesus' resurrection. And these things are all written to prove to you one thing, the identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. And once he has finished his objective, he stops writing. In fact, that we see that objective is written in Mark chapter 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the very Son of God. The other objective that Mark had is this, that we would walk away realizing that Jesus is amazing. He is amazing. Look how the women responded when we get to the end. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Trembling is the Greek word tremos, which means to shake. They were shaking. They were astonished. It's the Greek's word ecstasis, where we get our word ecstasy, excited. And then it says they were afraid, which is the Greek word phobos. But that's not scared afraid. That's like I'm speechless and don't know how to respond afraid. Now, here's the point I want you to realize. Every single encounter with Jesus in this gospel, people respond at the end of that encounter with one of those three words. Either trembling, astonishment and amazement, or speechlessness with fear. For instance, Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it says, They were amazed and astonished at Jesus' teaching. Mark chapter 2, He healed the paralytic, and they were amazed. Mark chapter 4, He calmed the storm, and it says, They were afraid. Mark chapter 5, He cast out demons, and they were afraid. 
Mark chapter 5, he healed the woman who had the sudden flow of blood, and she did what? Responded with fear and trembling. Mark chapter 5, he raised Jairus' daughter and says, and they were amazed. Mark chapter 9, Jesus was transfigured before them, and they were terrified. Mark chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death in Jerusalem, and they were amazed. Are you seeing a pattern? That when you encounter Jesus, and when you see Jesus, you were astonished, you're trembling, and you are completely without words in awe. No wonder the women left the greatest miracle of all with all three of those responses when Jesus rose from the dead. So here's my question for you. Today, as we officially finish the Gospel of Mark, how are you going to respond to Jesus? Have you come to realize what Mark has been trying to tell you all along? That Jesus is the very Son of God. God in the flesh because he does the things that only God can do. And the only proper response to him is that we too would be shaking in awe. We too would be filled with amazement. And when we first discover this, that we would be so overwhelmed that we would be speechless. But I want you to know that those women, they left the tomb speechless, but they didn't stay speechless, did they? In fact, their amazement turned to wonder, which turned to joy, and they couldn't stop talking to others about Jesus, that he rose from the dead. This week, Will you be the same way? Filled with amazement, awe, and wonder of Jesus? It helps us reach more people with Jesus by telling the good news that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God who loves you, who died for you, and rose from the dead for you too. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.